Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of Nana by Emizola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirteen, Part Two. Here's Madame," said Zoe, coming back. She had probably been watching for her out of the bedroom window. More scuttling about was heard in the house, and the sounds of laughter died away as the doors were closed. Georges heard Nana pay the baker and utter a few brief words. Then she came up the stairs. "'What, you're still here?' said she as she caught sight of him. "'Ah, we shall have a row, my little man.' He followed her whilst she moved towards the bedroom. "'Nana, will you marry me?' But she shrugged her shoulders. It was too absurd. She did not answer. Her idea was to bang the door in his face. "'Nana, will you marry me?' She slammed the door. With one hand he opened it, whilst he withdrew the other hand holding the scissors from his pocket. And simply, with one violent blow, he thrust them into his chest. Nana, however, had had a feeling that something terrible was going to happen. She turned round. When she saw him strike himself, she was seized with indignation. But he's cracked, he's cracked, and with my scissors, too. Will you leave off, you wicked child? Ah, good heavens, ah, good heavens! She was seized with fear. The youngster, fallen on his knees, had struck himself a second blow which had laid him flat on the carpet. He blocked the threshold of the bedroom. Then she became quite bewildered. She shouted with all her might, not daring to step over that body which shut her in and prevented her running for help. Zoe, Zoe, come quick, make him leave off. It's absurd, a child like that. He's killing himself now, and in my house too. Did anyone ever see such a thing? He frightened her. He was all white and his eyes were closed. The wound scarcely bled at all. There was only a little blood which trickled from under the waistcoat. She had nerved herself to pass over the body when an apparition caused her to draw back. Opposite to her, by the open door of the parlor, she beheld an old lady advancing, and she recognized Madame Hugon, terrified, unable to account for her presence. She continued to step back. She still wore her bonnet and gloves. Her terror became such that she attempted to defend herself in a hesitating voice. Madame, it was not I. I swear to you. He wanted to marry me. I said no, and he's killed himself. Madame Hugon slowly approached, dressed in black with her pale face and white hair. In the carriage the thought of Georges had left her, and Philippe Sin alone had occupied her mind. Perhaps that woman would give some explanations to the judges which might cause them to be more lenient, and her intention was to implore her to bear witness in her son's favor. Downstairs the doors of the mansion were wide open. She hesitated at the staircase with her poor legs, when suddenly shouts of fear had directed her steps. Then, upstairs, she beheld a man lying on the floor, his shirt stained with blood. It was Georges. It was her other child. Nana kept repeating in an idiotic way, He wanted to marry me. I said no, and he skilled himself. Without a cry, Madame Hugon stooped down. Yes, it was the other one. It was Georges. The one dishonored, the other dead. It did not surprise her in the downfall of her whole existence. Kneeling on the carpet, ignoring the place where she was, noticing no one, she looked fixedly in Georges' face. She listened with a hand upon his heart. Suddenly she uttered a faint sigh. She had felt his heart beat. Then she raised her head, examined the room and the woman, and seemed to recollect. 
A fire lighted up her vacant eyes. She was so grand and so terrible that Nana trembled as she continued to defend herself over that corpse which separated them. I swear to you, madame, if his brother was here, he could explain. His brother is a thief. He is in prison, said the mother harshly. Nana remained transfixed, gasping for breath. But why all that? The other had robbed. They were mad then in that family. She ceased struggling, no longer seeming to be in her own house, but leaving Madame Higon to give her own orders. Some of the servants had at last hastened to the spot. The old lady insisted on having Georges, insensible as he was, taken to her carriage. She would remove him from that house, though it killed him. Nana, with a stupefied gaze, watched the servants carrying that poor Zizi by his legs and shoulders. The mother followed behind, quite exhausted now, leaning on the furniture, as though sunk into the nothingness of all she loved. On the landing she sighed, and turning round said twice, "'Ah, you have done us much harm! You have done us much harm!' That was all. Nana seated herself in her stupor with her gloves still on her hands and her bonnet on her head. The house relapsed into a dull silence. The carriage had just gone off and she remained immovable, without an idea, her head all buzzing with what had just transpired. A quarter of an hour later, Count Mifa found her in the same place. But then she eased herself with a great flow of words, telling him of the misfortune, repeating twenty times the same details, picking up the scissors smeared with blood, to imitate Zizi's gesture when he stabbed himself. And she seemed especially anxious to prove her innocence. "'Come now, darling, was it my fault?' If you were justice, would you condemn me? I never told Philippe to steal. That's very certain, any more than I drove this poor fellow to kill himself. In all this, I'm the most miserable. They come and make fools of themselves here. They cause me a great deal of pain. I'm treated like a wretch of a woman. And she burst out crying. Her nerves were highly unstrung, which rendered her weak and doleful, and deeply moved with an immense sorrow. You too, you don't seem very pleased. Ask Zoe now if I'm at all to blame. Zoe, speak. Explain to the Count. For some few minutes the maid, having fetched from the dressing-room a towel and a basin of water, had been rubbing the carpet to get rid of a stain of blood whilst it was still wet. Oh, sir, she declared, Madame is quite broken-hearted. Mifa was greatly affected, feeling stunned by the drama his thoughts full of that mother weeping for her two children. He knew her great heart. He saw her in her widow's weeds pining away all alone at Les Fondettes. But Nana's despair increased. Now the picture of Zizi lying on the floor with a red spot on his shirt put her quite beside herself. He was so pretty, so gentle, so caressing. Ah, you know, Ducky, it's so much the worse if you don't like it. I loved him, the baby. I can't control myself. It's stronger than I am. And then it can't matter to you now. He is no longer here. You have what you wanted. You may be quite sure of never catching us together again. This last idea overwhelmed him with such regret that he ended by trying to console her. She must bear up. She was right. It was not her fault. But she stopped him to say, Listen, you must run and bring me news of him. At once. I insist. He took his hat and went off to obtain news of Georges. When he returned at the end of three-quarters of an hour, 
he beheld Nana leaning out of the window anxiously awaiting him, and he called to her from the pavement that the little fellow was not dead, and that they even hoped to save his life. Then she changed at once to a great joy. She sang, danced, and thought life beautiful. Zoe, however, was not satisfied with her cleansing. She kept looking at the stain and saying each time she passed, You know, madame, it hasn't gone away. And in fact, as it dried, the stain appeared a pale red on one of the white ornaments of the carpet. It was on the very threshold of the room, like a line of blood barring the way. Bah, said Nana, happy once more. The footsteps will wear it away. By the morrow, Count Mifa had also forgotten the incident. When in the cab on the way to the Rue Richelieu, he had sworn never to return to that woman. Heaven gave him a warning. He looked on Philippe's and Georges' calamity as foreboding his own ruin. But neither the spectacle of Madame Hugo in tears nor the sight of the youth consumed with fever had had the power to make him keep his oath and from the short moment of emotion caused by the drama, all that remained to him was the secret joy of being rid of a rival whose charming youth had always exasperated him. He now experienced an exclusive passion, one of those passions of men who have had no youth. He loved Nana with a necessity always to know that she was his alone, to hear her, to touch her, to be under the influence of her breath. It was an attachment which had gone beyond the mere gratification of his senses and had reached the purer feeling, an anxious affection, jealous of the past, dreaming at times of redemption, of pardon bestowed, both of them kneeling before God the Father. Each day religion regained some of its ascendancy over him. He again practiced going to confession and communicating, struggling unceasingly, mingling his remorse with the joys of sin and of penitence. Then, his spiritual director having permitted him to wear out his passion, he had made a habit of that daily damnation, which he redeemed by bursts of faith full of a devout humility. He very naively offered to heaven, as an expiatory suffering, the abominable torment he endured. This torment continued to increase. It raised his calvary of a believer, of a grave and profound heart, fallen into the mad sensuality of a courtesan. What caused him the most agony were the continual infidelities of that woman, for he could not accustom himself to share with others, failing to understand her stupid infatuations. He longed for an eternal love ever the same. Yet she had sworn to be faithful, and he paid her for that. But he felt that she lied, unable to guard herself, giving herself to her friends and the passers-by, like some good animal born to live in a state of nakedness. One morning that he observed Foucarmont leaving her house at a rather peculiar hour, he sought an explanation. She at once flew into a passion tired of his jealousy. She had already on several occasions been very nice. For instance, the night when he had caught her with Georges, she had been the first to make it up, admitting her fault, loading him with caresses and pretty words to help him get over it. But at length he bored her with his obstinacy in not understanding women, and she roughly said, Well, yes. I've been Foucarmont's mistress. What next? Eh, hey, that puts your hair out of curl, my little muff. It was the first time she had called him little muff to his face. He remained bursting with rage at the brazenness of her avowal, and as he clenched his fist, she walked towards him and looked him straight in the face. Now, that's enough, do you hear? If it doesn't please you, just oblige me by going off. I won't have you kicking up a row in my house. Understand that I intend to be free to do as I like. When a man pleases me, I'll have him here. 
Exactly. That's what I mean. And you must make up your mind at once. Yes or no, the door is open. She had gone and opened the door. He did not go. So now it became her way of attaching him to her all the more. For nothing at all, at the least quarrel, she gave him his choice, accompanied by some of the most abominable reflections. Ah, well, she would always be able to find someone better than he. She had only too many people to choose from. One could pick up men outside as many as one wanted, and fellows who were not such ninnies as he, whose blood boiled in their veins. He bowed his head. He waited for better times, when she would be in want of money. Then she became caressing, and he forgot everything. A night of love compensated for the tortures of a week. His reconciliation with his wife had made his home unbearable. The countess, cast off by Faucherie, who was once more completely under Rose's influence, sought forgetfulness in other amours, in the attack of the feverish anxiety of her forty years, ever nervous, and filling the house with the exasperating commotion of her mode of living. Since her marriage, Estelle no longer saw her father. This skinny and insignificant-looking girl had suddenly developed into a woman with an iron will so absolute that Degonet trembled before her. Now he accompanied her to church, converted and furious with his father-in-law who was ruining them with an abandoned female. Monsieur Venot alone remained affectionate towards the Count whilst biding his time. He had even succeeded in gaining access to Nana. He frequented the two houses where one often came across his continual smile behind the doors and Mufa, miserable in his own home, driven from thence by dullness and shame, preferred rather to live amidst the insults of the Avenue de Villiers. Soon, only one question remained between Nana and the Count, that of money. One day, after formally promising to bring ten thousand francs, he had dared to present himself at the appointed time empty-handed. For the previous two days she had been exciting him with endless caresses. Such a breaking of his word! So many endearing little ways wasted threw her into an abusive rage. She became quite white. Eh, you've no money? Then, my little muff, return to whence you came, and quicker than that, too. What a sordid wretch! And he was going to kiss me. No money, no anything. You understand? He entered into some explanations. He would have the money the day after the morrow. But she interrupted him violently. And my bills that are coming due. They'll seize my goods whilst his lordship comes here on tick. Now, just look at yourself. Do you think I love you for yourself? When one has a mug like yours, one pays the women who are willing to put up with you. Damnation! If you don't bring me the ten thousand francs tonight, you shan't even so much as suck the tip of my little finger. Really, I must send you back to your wife. That night he brought the ten thousand francs. Nana held out her lips. He took a long kiss, which consoled him for all his day of agony. What annoyed the young woman was always having him attached to her skirts. She complained to Monsieur Venot, imploring him to take her little muff to the countess. Their reconciliation did not appear to have been of much use, and she regretted having had anything to do with it, as he was forever at her back. The days when, blinded by anger, she forgot her interest, she swore to play him such a dirty trick that he would never again be able to come near her. But while she blackguarded him, slapping her thighs meanwhile, she might have even spat in his face, he would have remained and thanked her. Then they had continual quarrels about money. She roughly demanded it. 
She abused him in regard to the most miserable sums, odiously greedy every minute, delighting and cruelly telling him that she only tolerated him for his money and for nothing else, that she didn't care for him, that she loved another, and that she was very unfortunate in having to do with such an idiot as he. They did not even want to have him any longer at court, where there was a talk of requesting him to send in his resignation. The Empress had said, He is too disgusting. That was very true. And Nana always repeated the words as a parting shot in their quarrels. Really, you are too disgusting. She no longer put the least constraint upon herself now. She had regained complete liberty. Every day she took her drive in the bois round the lake, forming acquaintances there which became more intimate elsewhere. It was the great angling match for men, the baiting in the full light of day the hooking by illustrious harlots beneath the smile of toleration and the dazzling luxury of Paris. Duchesses drew each other's attention to her, the wives of wealthy tradesmen copied her bonnets. At times her landau, when striving to pass, would arrest a long string of grand equipages containing financiers holding all Europe in their cash-boxes and ministers whose big fingers were half-throttling France, and she formed a part of this world of the bois. She occupied an important position there, known by the people of every capital, greatly in demand with all foreigners, adding the mad fit of her debauchery to the splendors of that crowd like the very glory and keen enjoyment of a nation. Then the intimacies of a night, mere birds of passage of which she herself lost all recollection on the morrow, would take her to the grand restaurants, often to the Café de Madrid when the weather was fine. All the staff of the embassies defiled there, she dined with Lucy Stewart, who murdered the French language and who paid to be amused, taking the girls at so much an evening with instructions to them to be funny, while they themselves were so sick of everything and so worn out that they never even touched them. And the girls called it going on the spree. They returned home delighted at having been treated with such disdain and finished the night with some lover of their choice. Count Mifa pretended to be ignorant of these goings-on when Nana did not tell him of them herself. He suffered, too, a great deal from the disgraces of his daily existence. The mansion in the Avenue de Villiers was becoming a regular hell, a madhouse in which sudden crazes at all hours of the day led to the most odious scenes. Nana had arrived at the point of battling with her servants. At one time she was especially good to Charles, the coachman. Whenever she stopped at a restaurant, she sent him out refreshments by the waiters. She would talk to him from inside her landau, highly amused, thinking him very funny as he roundly abused the other drivers whenever there was a block in the street. Then, without rhyme or reason, she completely changed and treated him as a fool. She was always wrangling about the straw, the bran, and the oats. In spite of her love for animals, she considered that her horses ate too much. So at length, one settling day as she accused him of robbing her, Charles flew into a passion and bluntly called her a strumpet. Her horses, anyhow, were worth more than she— they did not let everyone muck them about. She retorted in a similar style, and the Count was obliged to separate them and turn the coachman off the premises. But this was only the beginning of a general stampede of the servants. Victorine and François went off after the discovery of a robbery of diamonds. Even Julien disappeared, and a story was circulated that the Count had implored him to go, giving him at the same time a large sum of money because Madame had taken a great fancy to him. Every week fresh faces were seen in the servants' hall. Never had there been such waste. The house was like a passage through which the scum of the servants' registry offices defiled in a massacring gallop. 
Zoe alone kept her place, with her neat look and her only anxiety of organizing the disorder, so long as she had not saved sufficient to settle down on her own account, a plan which she had been working at for a long time past. And yet those were only the avowable cares. The Count bore with Madame Maloire's stupidity playing at bézique with her in spite of her rank odor. He put up with Madame Lerat and her cackling, and with little Louis and his doleful complaints of a child devoured by disease, some putrefaction bequeathed by an unknown father. But he had to endure other things far worse. One night, behind a door, he had heard Nana furiously telling her maid that a pretended rich man had just taken her in. Yes, a handsome fellow who said he was American, and owned gold mines in his own country. A mean vagabond who had gone off whilst she was asleep without leaving a sou behind, and even taking a packet of cigarette papers away with him. And the Count, very pale, had crept downstairs again on tiptoe, so that he might feign ignorance of the occurrence. On another occasion he was obliged to be aware of everything. Nana, infatuated with a singer at a music-hall and forsaken by him, wanted to commit suicide in a fit of gloomy sentimentality. She swallowed a glass of water in which she had soaked a handful of matches and was horribly ill in consequence, but did not die. The Count had to nurse her and listen to the story of her passion intermingled with tears and oaths never to care for men again. In her contempt for the pigs, as she called them, she could not, however, keep her heart free, having always some sweetheart about her skirts and indulging in the most inexplicable caprices through the depraved tastes of her wearied body. Since Zoe relaxed her supervision to meet her own ends, the good management of the household had disappeared to the extent that Mifa dared not open a door, draw a curtain, or look into a cupboard. The machinery no longer worked. Gentlemen were hanging about everywhere. At every minute they were knocking up against each other. Now he invariably coughed before entering a room, having almost found the young woman with her arms round Francis's neck one evening that he had left the dressing-room for a couple of minutes to order the carriage, whilst the hairdresser was giving a few finishing touches to Madame's hair. It was for ever sudden abandonments behind his back. Pleasures snatched in odd corners, quickly, and in her chemise or in her most gorgeous costumes, with whoever happened to be with her. Then, delighted with her robbery, she would rejoin him, looking very red in the face. With him there would have been no pleasure. He was such an abominable nuisance. In the agony of his jealousy the unhappy man had reached the state of feeling easy whenever he left Nana and Satin alone together. He would have encouraged her in this connection for the sake of keeping the men away. But on this side also everything went wrong. Nana deceived Satin, the same as she deceived the Count, having a rage for the most monstrous crazes, picking up girls from the street corners. When returning home in her carriage, she would at times become enamored of some strumpet caught sight of on the pavement, her senses inflamed, her imagination kindled, and she would take the woman with her, then pay her and send her away. At other times, disguised as a man, she would frequent houses of ill repute, and witness spectacles of debauchery which helped her to forget her weariness and Satin, annoyed at being continually forsaken, would disturb the house with the most atrocious scenes. She had ended by gaining complete mastery over Nana, who respected her. Mifa even thought of allying himself with her. When he did not dare to do anything himself, he would set Satin to work. Twice she had made her darling take him back, whilst he showed himself very obliging, giving her a word of warning or making himself scarce at the least sign. Only the understanding did not last long, for Satin, too, was cracked. 
On certain days she would smash everything, feeling half dead, ruining what little health she had left in excesses of anger or of dissipation, looking pretty though in spite of all. Zoe probably set her off, for she took her into corners as though she wished to gain her over in the interest of that grand business of hers, that plan of which she had never yet spoken to anyone. Singular fits of revolt, however, still took possession of Count Mifa. He, who had tolerated Satin for months past, who had ended by accepting strangers, all that troop of men galloping through Nana's bedroom, became enraged at the idea of being deceived by any of his friends or even acquaintances. When she owned to him her intimacy with Foucarmont, he suffered so much, he considered the young man's treachery so abominable that he wished to provoke him to a duel. As he did not know whom to ask to be his seconds in such an affair, he consulted La Bordette. The latter was so astounded that he could not refrain from laughing. A duel about Nana? But, dear sir, all Paris would laugh at you. No one could fight for Nana. It would be too ridiculous. The Count became very pale. He made a violent gesture. Then I will strike him in the street before everyone. For an hour La Bordette had to reason with him. A blow would make the story odious. By the evening everyone would know the real cause of the meeting. He would be the laughing-stock of the newspapers. And La Bordette kept returning to this conclusion. Impossible! It would be too ridiculous! Each time these words fell upon Mifa sharp and clean like the blow of a knife. He could not even fight for the woman he loved. Everyone would split their sides with laughing. Never before had he so painfully felt the misery of his love, that solemn feeling of his heart lost in that fooling of pleasure. This was his last revolt. He let himself be convinced. From that time he assisted at the procession of his friends, of all the men who lived there in the privacy of the mansion. In a few months Nana devoured them greedily one after the other. The increasing requirements of her luxury whetted her appetite. She cleaned a man out with the crunch of her teeth. First she had Foucarmont, who did not last a fortnight. He had dreamed of leaving the navy. In ten years of a seafaring life he had saved some thirty thousand francs which he wanted to risk in the United States, and his prudent and even miserly instincts were silenced. He gave all, even his signature to accommodation bills, thus affecting his future. When Nana turned him adrift he was penniless. However, she showed herself very kind-hearted. She advised him to return to his ship. What was the use of being obstinate? As he had no money left, he could not possibly remain with her. He ought to understand that and be reasonable. A ruined man fell from her hands like ripe fruit, to rot on the earth all by himself. Next, Nana tackled Steiner without disgust, but also without love. She called him a dirty Jew. She seemed to be gratifying an old hatred which she could not very well explain to herself. He was fat, he was stupid, and she turned him about, taking double mouthfuls, wishing to have done with the Prussian all the quicker. He had given up Simon. His bosphorus speculation was already in jeopardy. Nana hastened his downfall by the most lavish expenditure. For a month still he struggled, performing miracles. He covered Europe with a colossal publicity posters, advertisements, prospectuses, and extracted money from the most distant countries. All those savings, the louis of the speculators, the same as the sous of the poor people, were swallowed up in the Avenue de Villiers. He had also gone into partnership with an iron founder in Alsace. 
there were there in a corner of the country workmen black with coal-dust bathed with perspiration who night and day tightened their muscles and heard their bones crack to supply the means for nana's pleasures she devoured all like a great fire the thefts at the bourse the earnings of labor this time she finished steiner she returned him to the pavement sucked to the bone so emptied that he remained even incapable of inventing a fresh roguery in the collapse of his banking establishment he went crazy he trembled at the name of the police he was made a bankrupt and the mere word money bewildered him threw him into a childish state of embarrassment he who had handled millions one evening when with her he burst out crying he asked her to lend him a hundred francs to pay his servant and nana affected and amused by this ending of the terrible old man who for twenty years past had been skimming the paris market brought him the money saying you know i give him you because it's funny but listen my little man you're not of an age for me to keep you you must seek some other occupation then nana at once started on la faloise he had for a long time been soliciting the honour of being ruined by her so as to be a perfect swell that was what he was in want of he must have a woman to bring him out. In two months Paris would know him, and he would read his own name in all the newspapers. Six weeks sufficed. His inheritance consisted of landed estates, fields, pastures, woods, and farms. He had to sell them rapidly one after the other. At every bite Nana devoured an acre. The foliage frizzling beneath the sun, the rich ripe corn, the golden vines in September— the tall grass in which the cows buried themselves up to their shoulders, all went as though engulfed in some abyss. And there were also a stream, a lime quarry, and three windmills which disappeared. Nana passed like an invading army, like one of those clouds of locusts whose flight destroys a whole province similar to a flame of fire. She burnt the earth wherever she placed her tiny foot. Farm after farm, Meadow after meadow, she nibbled up the inheritance in her pretty way, without even noticing what she was about, just the same as she would crunch up a bag of burnt almonds placed on her knees between her meals. It was a matter of no consequence, they were merely sweeties. But one night there only remained a small wood. She swallowed it with a disdainful air, for it was really not worth the trouble of opening one's mouth for. La Faloise laughed in an idiotic way as he sucked the knob of his walking-stick. Debts were crushing him down. He no longer possessed a hundred francs of income. He saw himself obliged to go back to the country and live with a maniacal uncle. But that did not matter. He was a swell. The Figaro had twice printed his name, and with his skinny neck rising out of his collar slightly turned down in front, his waist encased in a waistcoat a great deal too tight, he swaggered about uttering exclamations like a parrot, and affecting the languors of a wooden puppet that has never had an emotion. Nana, whom he irritated immensely, ended by beating him. Faucherie, however, had returned brought by his cousin. The unfortunate Faucherie at this time had become quite a family man. After breaking off with the countess, he found himself in the hands of Rose, who treated him as a real husband. Mignon simply remained Madame's major-domo. Installed as master, the journalist used to lie to Rose, and whenever he deceived her had to take all sorts of precautions, full of the scruples of a good spouse desirous of at length settling down. Nana's triumph was to hook him and to devour a newspaper he had started with the money of one of his friends. She did not openly go about with him, 
she took a delight, on the contrary, in treating him as a gentleman who must conceal his movements, and whenever she spoke of Rose, she would say, That poor Rose! The newspaper supplied her with flowers for a couple of months. She had subscribers in the country. She took everything, from the leading article to the theatrical notes. Then, after wearing out the editors, dislocating the management, she satisfied one of her big caprices, a winter garden in a corner of her mansion, which carried off the printing establishment. It was merely by way of amusement, however. When Mignon, delighted with what was taking place, hastened to see if he could not fix Fauchery on her for good, she asked him if he was poking fun at her. A fellow without a sou, living on his articles and his plays? Not if she knew it. Such stupidity was only worthy of a woman of talent like that poor Rose, and, full of mistrust, fearing some underhand dealing on Mignon's part, who was quite capable of denouncing them to his wife, she dismissed Fauchery, who for some time had only been paying her in advertisements. End of chapter 13, part 2